Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. That's the way unhelpful stereotypes get uh, spread around too. I mean, I know a lot of the VSOs and a lot of the organizations um, here in Washington, one of the big issues is um, to remember that um, so many veterans are thriving and um, that we need to do that delicate dance between supporting and championing, especially in the employment realm. Like, you know, employers don't need to be nervous about hiring veterans. They're civic assets. I mean, um, you know, these are natural leaders. These are people who rose, you know, stuck their hand up in the air to serve. Like that's that kind of person is going to be good to work for you, whatever you do. Um, so to do that dance where we're realizing that as an as a group, these are remarkable people um, and. There are some who are struggling at any given point in time that can shift over time within each person. But also, you know, we certainly are here not only to help alleviate suffering among that group, but also to help people, um, I always say, just reclaim or sometimes claim for the first time. You know, some of these people join up when they're really young and, and come from some tough circumstances that it's not just getting rid of suffering. It's really helping people claim lives of purpose and lives of joy. And Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your Headspace and Timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. This is your first time listening, and thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Thank you, folks, for uh, showing back up to listen to another episode of Headspace and Timing, a podcast where we're trying to change the way that you think about veteran mental health. Uh, I'm really appreciative of our guest today to be able to take the time uh, out of her busy schedule to join us and talk about veteran mental health. Uh, Dr. Heather Kelly is uh, is a member of uh, or is the lead military and veterans uh, policy uh, person at the American Psychological Association, and so she's with uh, Division 19. Uh, with the uh, those of you who are clinicians who are listening, you're very familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the APA Division 19. But uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Heather Kelly to the show. Heather, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to spend some time with you all. 
Yeah, no, that's great. We we really appreciate it. This is uh, it's it's been uh, pretty interesting. Um, the the number of uh, clinicians, the number of service providers that are interested in coming on and talking about veteran mental health. Uh, for some reason, uh, we don't do quite as much as as we probably could uh, to sort of get the word out about veteran mental health. I agree. So I'm delighted that you provide this. Uh, opportunity for everyone to talk and hopefully spark more discussions about it. So, as you mentioned, I'm uh, I, they cre- the APA created a new job title for me. Although I've been here for almost 20 years in various roles, uh, lobbying on Capitol Hill and in the federal agencies for um, military personnel and veterans and their families and their communities. Uh, as of June 1, just a couple of months ago, APA created its first director of military and veterans health policy within our practice directorate and practice organization. And, um, and that's me. So I'm delighted to come on in this new role where I not only lobby for the research portfolios, but also really holistically work on all issues, including all clinical issues that are relevant for military connected populations and the psychologists who serve them. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show because you're you have a very national level view of some of the challenges that uh, that veterans face, some of the different things that the mental health community is trying to do. And so, while you know veteran mental health and uh, and everything may be at the very local level and where resources are, um, I, I assume you have a, a very broad view of some of the overarching problems that. Uh, that, that face the veteran mental health? Yes. So in, in my current job, I really am tasked with focusing at a systemic level and a federal level, although the, what that often means is staying in really close touch with uh, military personnel and veterans and their families and military and veteran uh, VA psychologists who are doing the work at home in communities. Uh, so I certainly try to talk a lot with everyone really on the front lines of all this work, but also my job is really to raise those issues to a federal level and uh, be one of the voices, a liaison, you know, if it were, between psychological um, community and providers and our consumers who are veterans or military personnel, and then the members of Congress who make laws and direct policy that uh, directly affect those populations, um, but also the federal agencies themselves. So I spend almost as much time within the VA um, working with um, everyone from the secretary to um, the psychologists in the headquarters offices here and to the psychologists out in the VA medical centers. Um, I spend as much time within the agency trying to figure out what's going on and what we can do to affect some systemic change that will make things better as I do yelling at members of Congress and their staff um, to do well and do better by, um, by veterans and their families. So, I mean, and that's definitely, uh, appreciated both as an individual practitioner here, you know, we, we can get focused on, you know, closing the door and obviously the clients, uh, that we serve and not a lot of, um, uh, clinicians are directly involved in kind of advocacy. You and I were talking before we got on the show that, uh, that I'm doing some at a, a local level, uh, but that's not something that a lot of the practitioners, especially those that are working with veterans, really get involved with a lot. You know, it's true. And I part of what I would love to, to talk with everyone about and part of why I spend a lot of time out on the road at various conferences or at VAs or in, in communities 
is to encourage veterans themselves, but also psychologists who serve um, as federal employees in the VA or in DOD, to remember that your rights as a U.S. citizen don't stop at the door. Um, well, they stop at the door, but they don't stop when you walk in as a federal employee. And and I have you know I have a lot of um, psychologists I work with who say, so what am I allowed to do? What can I do? Um, with the expertise that they have, but to still um, be serving their day jobs well. And I, and I have this little quick mnemonic was just, you're fine to still retain all of those rights within the Hatch Act, all of your rights as a private citizen to talk with the government, as long as you do it on your own time and your own dime and your own device. So um, there's an, an independent of APA. We, you know, we have a section, as you mentioned, from Division 19 for military psychologists. We also have a section of our public service division that is dedicated to VA psychologists. But there's also an independent organization, and we have a lot of overlap with APA members, but it's called the Association of VA Psychologist Leaders, or AVAPEL. And they really are, it consists wholly of VA psychologists. And they spend a lot of their time, um, again, on their own personal time, with their own personal money, with their own personal phones or computers. And I work with them to um, really learn what's going on um, and, and understand what are the changes necessary or additional emphasis or support or funding that should be going to, to make sure that veterans are getting served more comprehensively by the VA. So there are lots of opportunities to engage in advocacy and just to, to um, use the skills that you all have, but also the passion that you have. There's a reason why you are working with these populations and you care deeply about them, and I, I do too. Um, and so there are still opportunities for you to be involved, to, to be in your local communities, to be coming to Washington, as, again, as long as it's on your own time and you're representing yourself as yourself. Um, we really could use all of that expertise and that energy that you bring to the conversation. You know, it's great to hear that at that level that, um, and, and not that I don't doubt that uh, mental health professionals in the VA uh, are not involved, but, uh, but you don't see it very often, I, I think. You know, it's true. I, I think people are. I think people are scared. Federal employees are scared because there there are rules about how you can be involved. But um, there are lots of ways in which you are absolutely not only allowed to be involved, but we need your involvement. I remember taking some um, psychologists up to the hill to Capitol Hill to meet with some staff from the Veterans Affairs Committees. And uh, you know, a number of years ago, those those meetings might last ten minutes. And I I kept saying to everyone, you know, that's okay. That that's typical sometimes, but you at least get a chance to say who, who you are. Well, over the years, we've developed an incredible relationship between these psychologists on their personal time and staff on those really important committees and um, and the local VSOs, the Veteran Service Organizations. We spend a day with them and a day on the Hill. Um, and those conversations have become absolutely invel invaluable to all parts of those conversations. So the Hill staff, they, they just want straight answers. They want to know what's really going on in individual VA medical centers. Is it is what they're hearing, you know, from um, Washington really the case? If not, why not? What can be changed? For the VSOs, they're so delighted to have a conversation again with psychologists directly and just say, well, here's what our, our veterans are coming to us with. What, what do you think about that? What does it look like in the VA? And frankly, for the VA psychologists to take home and take to heart what they're hearing from veterans groups or what they're hearing from staff, because you're right, as clinicians, you have a really important day job and you're really focused on that for the most part. But if you can make the space and time to uh, come up out of that, you have such valuable information that the rest of us really need in order to make changes that aren't um, duplicative or that aren't, you know, actually sort of going to backfire, but that really 
change the landscape of how VA serves veterans. You know, and that's, uh, it's really great, again, that the opportunity is there. Um, I, as a, a community mental health provider, others have uh, said, you know, hey, Dwayne, you're a combat vet. You know, why aren't you working at the VA? Uh, and, and I find that it's, um, I kind of call it, you know, I'm, I'm outside, I'm the scout pointing back to the, the benefits. I mean, I, I know I, am, I have a lot of very excellent colleagues that work within the VA, um, that they're very skilled. And as you said, they're very passionate and they wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they didn't love it. Um, and then there's, uh, there's obviously restrictions that they may have. So I'm not somebody that, uh, of course, bashes the VA. Um, and, and I think there's a role for both community providers like myself. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you see so many veterans. I mean, we know from the, from the data that the VA doesn't and, and never can and never will serve all veterans and for a variety of reasons. I mean, um, you all in community mental health see the majority of veterans, frankly. Um, and part of my job is not only to track what's going on with DOD and VA to make sure they're adequately treating and supporting and funding um, mental health programs for uh, for veterans, but also to train and really catch the attention of my own, you know, the rest of APA's practitioners. So civilian uh, practitioners and, and people who are practicing in a multiple in multiple settings to say, listen, you're, you're going to see veterans, whether you realize it or not. And you as a veteran, Dwayne, I'm sure you asked the question right up front. Um, part of my goal is to have, you know, so-called civilian, um, psychologists really, um, feeling like, and, and to offer training and free CEs to make sure that they feel like they know how to ask people about military service, um, and then how to follow up if someone says, yes, um, I did serve, or if a family member says, oh, my, my, my wife was, or still is active duty to have civilian therapists and psychologists, um, really know what that might mean in terms of other unique needs that might pop up, but also sort of how to, how to then carry on the next conversation. Yes. And absolutely. You're, you're talking about, uh, cultural competence there, yes. of course, you know, yes. I, um, uh, my uh, is is veterans and and I see both veterans and spouses exclusively really is is how our clinic here in Colorado Springs is set up but if somebody comes in my office it's set up like a retired first sergeant's office right I mean, it looks like <laughs> you got maps on the walls and I've got somebody was in here earlier looking at my coins and yeah it's there and it and there's sort of yeah. that automatic buy-in but yes but it, I, I think it's very necessary that those who have never served and who who don't have that that lived experience necessarily uh, be able to develop the, uh, again, the cultural competence, the understanding, because uh, just as uh, I point back to the VA and say, you know, the VA is doing really good work, uh, and a lot of them are, are very excellent clinicians, we out in the community uh, really need to catch up with, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with the unique aspects of veteran mental health, you really need to take the time to learn, because there's not enough people like me you yes. know, a combat veteran who is also a clinical mental health counselor in the field. Yeah, you're kind of a unicorn, and we love our unicorns, but we need to um, help everyone else get to at least some semblance of that. And and listen, it's it mirrors the same civilian-military divide we hear a lot about in the population. It's not as if psychologists are immune to that. Um, so most psychologists um, are not unicorns like you in the sense that most psychologists have not also served in the military. We have thousands who have, obviously, but, but that's part of our job is to say, um, listen, this bridging as a therapist to people who've served in their families um, 
is the same kind of work that needs to go on, I would say, that our civil society needs to be working on, which is both sides understanding um, understanding what military and veteran life is like for a lot of, and, and you know, there, there are multiple universes that those, um, it's not like there's one military experience or one veteran family, but um, to really understand each other. And, and it's an extension of clinical skills. You know, people who are seeing um, clients, um, you know how to ask questions. You know how to find out where someone is coming from, both literally and figuratively. And we just want to extend some of the, we want, we want to give questions and ideas to civilian psychologists about here's something you might ask, or here's here's a relationship in terms of what the data tells us between um, maybe what might be some unique experiences and some of the mental health challenges or resiliency that that follows. And so we just want people to be better informed so that they feel comfortable talking with each other. You know, part of it is we also want uh, military and veterans and their families to feel comfortable going to a so-called civilian provider right. um, because there are so few of you so that we need both sides to be willing to um, engage in that conversation in a way that both come out thinking, well, that was kind of cool. Um, and I know a lot more about each other. And then you can move towards some of the more clinical issues. No, I, and I've uh, I've actually had uh, this conversation uh, a couple of different times um, about the fact that uh, those who have never served, especially mental health professionals, um, taking the time to learn and understand um, veteran culture and not requiring, this goes back to any type of cultural competence, um, not just military cultural competence, but not requiring the the client to teach us about their culture, yes. but taking the time yes. to learn about the culture separately so that we can best serve the client. Um, and and but, there are lots of opportunities. I mean, there are free modules of training out there. I mean, we want we want to offer a, it a million different ways and a million different forms for everyone to soak in, however is most helpful. But I mean, you can go on the VA website. There are wonderful free training modules about military and veteran cultures. And I always say culture plural for exactly why you, what you and I are talking about. Um, you can go on there as a mental health provider now and get CE credit. Um, there's a wonderful group called Psych Armor that you might, um, I think you and Marjorie have met. And so my dear friend Marjorie Morrison started a group um, expressly to address this military civilian divide. And it's called Psych Armor. You can go on their website. You can take free, again, free courses that are vetted by experts, I sit on their healthcare committee with a lot of really fine researchers and clinicians. And so these modules, and it's for everyone from uh, mental health providers to corporate employers to educators. You know, they have a bunch of sort of schools within their um, their courses, but they're free online courses about a, a lot of these issues uh, that are just, again, designed to help people feel more comfortable and more competent in beginning to, to uh, work with people who've, who've served. Yes, and I, and I appreciate that you brought that up. Absolutely, uh, Psych Armor is an excellent resource. I've uh, presented uh, several different uh, times on how to develop cultural competence for providers uh, or, or even anybody, case managers, peer support specialists, anyone in the community who's interacting with the veteran. Uh, and I always uh, use Psych Armor as an example. And uh, Marjorie, oh, we we have spoken. Uh, ultimately, when when our schedules, uh, she's going to come on the show. Oh, uh, she'll sometime. be terrific. You'll and, love her. And it is. I mean, and it's it's a very good program. But it's but it's also that the information is out there. But but how does you know how does one actually um, I guess generate the uh, the will or the desire to seek that? Yeah. You know. Yeah. You, so. So, I, you know, I have, of course, 
a hundred great ideas before breakfast if someone would just you know listen. Uh, but uh, all kidding aside, it, again, it's multi-pronged always. I mean, I think we all know that if there's a financial incentive, um, you know, people are busy. And if you're asking them to do um, not just this, but take training in lots of other areas for other clients uh, whom they might see, um, we certainly understand that there's just so much pressure and there's only so many hours in a day. But um, you know, for a, there was a big movement for a, um, us. Uh, it was really begun by nursing um, to quote ask the question, and it really provided um, an absolute financial incentive for physicians of all kinds um, and clinicians of all kinds um, to ask about military service in their first visit, whether that's a pediatrician's office, a primary care, you know, everyone's sort of asking some version of this question. And part of the incentive was that that you would be um, compensated in a different way. And so I think there are big insurance companies now who are providing incentives to their own networks to have taken these courses or to pr prove in some way a level of familiarity with military and veteran culture. You know, I'm going to um, – we just need to attack it from all ways. I'm training a bunch of our own APA psychologists when they come to town in the spring. Uh, for the first time, we're going to do a big – um, workshop on seeing military connected clients and families. So I think we all need to be hitting it hard. I certainly love how available online courses are, and especially if the, the quality is vetted, you know, that's terrific. I think we need to see some data on um, whether that level and that kind and format of training uh, works and in what ways. But we certainly all need to be thinking within our worlds and our spheres of influence, what can we be doing to get everyone up to speed to feel uh, competent because there, I mean, there's a huge need and we want to be able to, to meet that need with high quality and effective care. Yeah, and absolutely. This is actually uh, one of the main reasons why I joined the, uh, the podcast network here is to get this out. Um, and I've had uh, clinicians uh, from across the nation say, you know, I listen to your show. It helps me understand veterans issues. It helps me understand uh, veteran concerns, uh, mm -hmm. but also veterans listen to the show and, and say, you know, like uh, Dr. Mark Stubnecki, who was on before, he's with Eastern Carolina University. He's not a veteran, uh, but yet he spent the time, spent significant amount of time learning the veteran culture uh, yeah. and, and can provide the, the kind of services that are necessary. So it, it really helps the veteran, as you were talking before, bridging that gap. Because, mm -hmm. and again, I've said it often, I'll continue to say it, a veteran really doesn't need a reason to avoid mental health counseling. Any reason, right. any reason is a good reason. And if that yeah. reason is, oh, that civilian will never have any uh, idea, you know, what I'm talking about. And that gives them a reason to just not do something yeah. that they're uncomfortable with in the first place. And so this is really a way to kind of break that down. I agree. And, and we have to be really creative in lots of ways to avoid that exact issue. So, you know, again, I'll come back to the VA just because it's it's a huge health system that's been quite, and whatever you hear, it's been quite um, innovative in a lot of important ways. So for example, it's got the best integrated uh, care system and certainly integrated primary care system in our country. And uh, veterans are the beneficiaries of that, hopefully, if, if they're willing to go, um, that there are mental health specialists embedded right there in emergency rooms in the primary care setting. And just because we know that any Anything that we might not even consider a hurdle is, in fact, the data tell us if you even if there's a so-called warm handoff and someone in the primary care setting says literally like, oh, there's you could go see someone in mental health and I recommend that you do it. It's up. It's up a flight of stairs. 
Yes. Honestly, if it's a flight of stairs, you'll you'll lose half the people. Right. So we literally do things like take the words mental health off the sign or make sure that someone is, you know, 30 yards down the hall and she comes to you as opposed to the opposite. I mean, there are lots of ways to make this as absolutely as easy as possible um, for people to see. I also wanted to address something you brought up, Dwayne, about um, the different ways that we can each be um, – um, ambassadors, so as it were, for military and veteran populations. And it's interesting. I've seen this happen on the Hill so many times um, in a couple of ways. So, you know, obviously I go up there and talk a lot about um, uh, mental health issues like PTSD or traumatic brain injury. And it's interesting because sometimes I'm in there with other lobbyists from other organizations and um, veteran service groups. And I try to read the room again, like a good clinician, I'm reading the situation. Um, part of what's really helpful in two different ways is one, sometimes I'm the only person in the room um, who isn't just talking about PTSD, but who's actually treated people with PTSD. And so to to be able to say, well, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, fewer than there used to be when I first started this 20 years ago. I mean, you should have heard what people, I heard some of my colleagues explaining in a, in a group visit what PTSD was. And I was like, Oh no. Um, So it is really helpful to say, well, here's what that's actually, here's what that's actually like in a, in a therapy, um, relationship or, or a moment, here's how that plays out. But I'll tell you the other thing that's really helpful sometimes is, um, you know, I'm not a veteran. I was not in the military, but my entire family was. So, um, you know, my father and my, and both grandfathers are career military officers, combat veterans, all of them. Um, and sometimes, and, you know, it's not as if I sort of announce that every time I walk into a room to talk about these issues, but it, it comes up sometimes. And what I, I remember having a conversation um, trying to talk about military kids a few years ago in an issue surrounding education. Um, and I said something and the staffer or a staffer, a young staffer said something. And I said, you sound like someone who is a mil, you know, that came from a military family. Like maybe your dad or your mom was military. And he said right away, oh, yeah, you know, and sort of gave his story. And I said, well, I was, too. Um, and so it gives you, I remember sitting at the side of oceans, you know, waiting for submarines to come back and really hoping that my dad was on them, um, in just, uh, in wonderful ways and in sort of scary ways. I remember what that was like as a kid and, and watching my mom, um, and that experience of being part of a Navy family, um, has come in handy more times than I can tell you in sort of saying, listen, I, I didn't serve. I chose to serve the people who served. And but I do understand in some ways um, some of the lives that you, that you're coming from. And I understand your family's lives. That makes a big difference. No, I, and I, I really appreciate that, uh, that just understanding that culture. That's a totally different uh, aspect, the military family aspect mm-hmm. of culture. Uh, and, uh, and again, whether, you know, unicorn and, and I've heard people say that before, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I'm also the son of a combat veteran. My father was not yeah. career, uh, but he served in Vietnam and, and I did see a lot of the challenges all, you know, most of the challenges, um, that he experienced for the majority of his life. And, and you had mentioned before about, you know, the VA becoming this, uh, you know, this, this pariah or what have you. Um, but both being a career, you know, retired from the army myself after 22 years, but I watched my father navigate the VA of yeah. the eighties and the nineties and, uh, and then the early two thousands. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, we, we brought him out here to Colorado to live with us for a while so we could help get his care. Uh, and, and he had a totally different aspect on the VA as he's seen how it has evolved, 
uh, the VA of today is not the VA of 10 years ago, and it's not yes. going to be the VA of 10 years from now. Uh, yeah. It is, uh, it, and, and we all use the metaphors of, of uh, turning a battleship in, in the ocean, and, and it is such a, a large agency, but I have the benefit of, of as you, seeing how, how combat specifically, how military service could impact um, those uh, that, uh, that we cared about. But then also me being uh, someone the experience and then choose to serve how we served. It, it has evolved over time. Have you, yeah. s- you've seen that, I think. I have. And it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I got asked the same question by a reporter uh, for Stars and Stripes a couple of weeks ago. I think everyone's probably seen, uh, there've been a bunch of films and documentaries that have come out recently this fall um, relating to, um, military and veteran life. And one of the big ones, um, thank you for your service that came out from universal just to the public was just released about a week ago. Um, a lot of us were asked to, um, to engage with the director of that film and the actors as it was nearing its, its release. And one of the ways that APA that we chose to engage was to, um, offer up a bunch of our resources on PTSD. What, what does it look like? How do you find someone to, um, to treat it, what does good treatment look like? We have a lot of online resources about that here at APA, and so we offered that to the film's director, um, to, and they created a whole website that's right there at the time when you click on the film, there's a box right there saying, hey, this is a some version of, if this movie brings up anything for you, click click one of these and we'll take you to resources for, for help. And it, you know, there's a box that says I'm a veteran or I'm a provider or I'm a family member. And so I, um, they were, the reporter was asking me, um, you know, sort of not only about providing resources for the film, but, you know, the film was based on real life stories of, of veterans. But it was it's about it's based on David Finkel's book, which was about 10 years ago. Uh, and so the question was, does the film portray mental health in a certain way or and or um, the VA is it's portrayed in that film? What do you have to say? And I have to say, I echoed what I heard uh, Secretary Shulkin say after we screened the film together. And he said, listen, this 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 was absolutely their personal experience. So it is what it was, but also it is what it was. So this is what the experiences they had with the VA, not all of which were positive, but some of which were life-saving, frankly, happened um, in that context. And hopefully we all use that film and, and all the other experiences and don't get defensive about them that we hear from um, veterans, that we take those as fuel, frankly, fuel to um, get energized, to change the things that are not working well, to make that battleship turn more quickly, to demand that it turn more quickly um, and effectively. So I do. I, I use that as, um, you know, these things worked well, but oh, my God, that should never happen on our watch again, whatever it was, you know. So let's make sure that we're talking about that very explicitly. So I think there's a way to push to constantly demand from the VA that it do its best and that it changed to do its best without um, trashing the VA. Because, you know, in general, uh, veterans are so very happy. They get superb care at the VA overall. So we want to make sure that it's just really well resourced to continue to do well and to do even better. You know, that uh, that puts me in mind some of the, the work that I do with veterans, and this is really coming directly from uh, dialectical behavior therapy, mm-hmm. is that uh, we accept that at this moment we're doing the best that we can and we can always do better as well. Exactly. Uh, and that sounds like on a, you know, maybe, maybe the big, VA big collectively level. needs to go through DBT. <laughs> but, but, but really conceptually, the, the VA right now is doing as best as it can and the individuals within the VA are doing as best as it can. 
as they can. Yeah, then, I mean, it's a huge, huge system. It's a huge healthcare system. And I, I keep saying to everyone on the Hill and, and my own members, listen, I mean, we're in this for the long haul. What other massive system do we expect to get right and then stop? I mean, this is something that there will be constant tweaks, and that might be too small a word even there. I mean, it's going to need constant shaping and reshaping and, and um, you know, the, the research, the health systems research that's going to tell us what's working, what's not. And we shouldn't ever expect, I mean, people who say, oh, Congress, you know, it's constantly working. It needs to constantly be working on right. the VA. That's why there are standing committees that do nothing but. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that, that, as you said, it's not as if that's some sort of huge negative um, mark against the VA. It's just that it's massive. And so there are lots of things to do about it. And the needs of veterans change with, with different cohorts and with different, um, as you know better than I, what whatever's going on in the community in terms of healthcare and reimbursement and just availability of people to see. All of those things affect the VA and, and where veterans go for their care and how happy they are with it too. So it's never in a vacuum. And and I absolutely agree um, with uh, you know the the VA continuing to evolve, um, but also there is a role for community providers to, to bridge those gaps, and and they're not just narrow gaps; they're they're often entire you know populations of veterans who needs whose needs aren't being met. Uh, but that's my um, sort of outreach to my local community of providers to say, us as community providers who are culturally competent or who are willing to become culturally competent, step into that gap um, yes. and, and partner with the VA. It's not an adversarial yes. position. It's not, we're not no. on different sides it of the needs, chessboard. Yeah, it needs not to be. And, and your approach is exactly what obviously I would want to see too. And, you know, part of, I, I testified every year before the, um, the appropriations subcommittees asking for a certain amount of money and for initiatives and, for research, for clinical care. And part of what I always say is, of course, there is, there there always has been, there is, and there always will be um, a component of community care. And that's um, absolutely a positive. It has to be a collaboration. Um, and part of that, because th there are big moves towards what a lot of us call privatization right now that are very concerning to me and to APA. And I will say that everyone, <laughs> everyone in this town seems to have a different definition of the word privatization. So lots of people are going around saying they're not for it and then doing things that seem very much uh, to be pushing it, which I, um, you know, we're on record as, as against. Um, we need, we want a very strong, fully resourced VA system that also um, uh, collaborates with communities to provide care in the community. And, and I guess the, the things that I mentioned to members of Congress that I would say here again are, the VA has incredible, and you know this, has incredibly high standards of training um, and monitoring and supervision of its providers, higher than anywhere I've seen, certainly. Um, and so you exist in your community, and isn't that fabulous? There aren't, to come back to the unicorn analogy, you know, there are plenty of places where you don't exist or people like you don't exist. Right. And so, you know, I, have, I can't tell you the number of young staffers who would look, me, look at me and smile and, as if they were giving me a gift and say, I know how to start, um, to solve the um, access time, you know, wait times and access problems at the VA for mental health. We'll just say everyone can go into the community. And you and I both know that in geographic places where the VA, it's tough to get in to see um, a mental health person at the VA. It's it's likely even tougher to get someone at community mental health or in the community private sector to see because those are you, you guys are few and far between everywhere. And the VA does come in and hire a lot of good people wherever you are. So. 
A, there might not be appointments in the community. B, if there are, uh, we want to make sure that those providers are adequately trained exactly. and, again, held to the same high standards that the VA holds its mental health providers. We just we don't want anything less for our veterans. So right. that's easier said than done, frankly. But that's part of turning the battleship is turning turning the waters with it, frankly, uh, in the communities in which it exists. And that's where there's uh, there's a growing network of uh, of of course nationwide uh, with Anthony Hassan, uh, who was yes. actually on one of the the earliest podcasts here uh, in the Cohen Veterans Network that is that is yes. coming alongside and collaborating, um, and then on a local level organizations like mine and and uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Tony Williams, who was on another episode of of veterans who are trying to as you said, um, be at the local level. Uh, that voice. Uh, I often uh, explain uh, my role, especially as it relates to the VA, is that uh, I'm like a light infantry strike force, right? I can uh, mm-hmm. I can see a veteran very quickly. I could see if a veteran calls right now, I could see him this afternoon or tomorrow um, or, you know, in a couple of days, and I could get them uh, a frequent outpatient care. And so I could, I could go and I could, you know, seize the beachhead very quickly. However, um, it's likely that that veteran for the long term would be better served at the VA. So the VA is more like a combined arms brigade that brings all of the resources to bear that yes. I, as a community provider, couldn't provide. Uh, it would be difficult, and it has been difficult, for me to get a veteran into uh, Grand Island, Nebraska, Substance Abuse Center, or Sheridan, Wyoming, or even the Denver VA uh, PTSD program it's much easier for that veteran to get in if they're working with a VA mental health provider. And yes. so, uh, again, it, just like not everybody in the military is a light infantry, um, and, and neither could the large combined arms brigade move as quickly as some of that. And so it really has to be a collaborative kind of uh, um, symbiotic, in my mind, very symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. And one of the things you said is really important, and not just one, but one um, that you don't hear from a lot of other people in this conversation about uh, community care, which is, you know, and you explicitly mention, um, and will therefore be tracking and watching for the moment uh, when it's most appropriate. A lot of the VA psychologists I hear from, part of the problem is if they, if someone gets referred out or um, they never see this veteran again. And part of what you mentioned was, looking for those moments when it's going to help that veteran to get him or her back involved in whatever way is most appropriate with the VA. And that, I think if VA psychologists felt that and developed those relationships with community providers where the referring and the, um, the conversations went literally both ways so that if I refer you out because we don't have a specialty clinic who can see you soon, you know, that I know you're going to know when it's appropriate to refer back. And I think that's a really important part of the equation that a lot of people are missing. No, it's great that you say that because I've heard the same thing, not from my colleagues here at the VA as as they, my VA, and, and I'll, I, I love the Colorado Springs Seabock. I, I really love the practitioners there. I think they're, uh, they're, they're very efficient and, and they're, they love what they're doing. Uh, but I've heard the same thing that they say, well, it would be better for the veteran to see me as infrequently as I could see them than I send them out to somebody who I don't know if they know if they work veterans or not. And so there is a divide even from the, the yeah. clinicians in the VA yeah. and the community. And so in what I'm hearing from you is as I'm trying to build a coalition of community providers here in Colorado Springs that we can connect and, and interact with our, our VA counterparts 
um, that just to be able to say, because it's, you know, we do business with those we know, like, and trust, right? And, exactly. And, and if there is a divide between community providers who say, you know, give me all the apples, uh, and then, you know, the VA providers say, oh, I'm not going to give you any of my apples, yeah. um, that's that's not beneficial for the apples to, to carry the yeah. money for. And you know what? I mean, I can, I can work my tail off here at the federal level to make sort of big help make big things happen. But we all know that the magic happens at exactly the level you're talking about, which is in communities where people, and it's, you know, it's supposed to happen with all the mental health summits and, but some, some communities just do it better than others. And we all need to learn from the ones who are doing it well and be willing to do it. It's, it's a network of people and it matters that you know each other and that you trust each other and that you work together. I mean, you and I, before the, the, podcast started, we're talking about vet courts, uh, you know, sort of a separate topic, but very much related in terms of that's a model of the legal system, inviting in veterans and people who work with veterans and know veterans, and developing a model where everyone's doing his or her part, and it works. And the same thing, if you if you're, and I've gone down to Memphis on a, on a different, slightly different level, and worked with the Memphis VA and the Memphis um, CIT, the crisis intervention training team that works with law enforcement, and this really remarkable psychologist, Tom Kirchberg at Memphis VA, who said, we need to be all involved together in this so that the Memphis VA psychologists go over and teach some of the courses in the CIT training with the young police officers. Um, the police officers come over and spend an afternoon at the Memphis VA and talk with combat veterans, just sit and literally talk. What is it like? Um, those connections, and you have to make them happen. They can grow organically, but if you, you know, if you really want them to happen, you have to push them along. And Tom said, you know, Dr. Kirchberg, Tom says, you know, to the police officers, here's my cell phone number. I, I'm not kidding. If you, if this is all supposed to work a certain way, but if it doesn't, and you've got, you've picked up a veteran on the street and you, if you, none of the diversionary stuff is working, no one says they're open to take her or him. Um, and you are at the end of your rope and you're about to just sort of, you know, you know, arrest her or him, please just call my cell phone. I will literally come there. I will meet you. I will talk with the veteran. I will find, I will make RVA hospital open up, you know, if the ER is closed, whatever it is, I'll make it happen. Um, and I talked to some of the police officers down there and they said, and first of all, you have to say that, but then second of all, you have to answer the phone if they ever really do do call you. And he did, he answered the phone. And so they have this remarkable, it sounds like your community, Memphis has this community where the local hospitals, the VA, the criminal justice system, the University of Memphis, they all have each other's numbers to a person and they use them. And so it works beautifully. Whatever we try to make at the federal level, it relies on people having human connections at the, at the community level. So I love hearing what you're doing. Well, and, and even hearing that, it's, it's very validating. And, and I'd mentioned um, uh, my colleague, uh, Tony Williams, and, and he was on episode 17 and, and Tony says something that, that I've repeated I think just about every episode now is he said and he was talking specifically about suicide but even veteran mental health it's a national problem with a local solution absolutely uh, it, it has to be managed at the local level um, my uh, my RC Bach here in Colorado Springs uh, the our veterans court it's unique in that um, it, it serves our geographic population we, we have a significant military town, maybe not as big as San Diego or Norfolk or, or yeah. definitely, um, but but we are the only um, county in the United States that has five military installations within its geographic boundaries. And so yeah. we have a, e- even within our state, our veterans court 
addresses situations differently than some of the other courts in the state because we have active duty service members in our veterans courts and we have to be flexible to be able to respond to what each of the needs are um and and the needs in memphis are very different than the needs in denver uh for example absolutely and so i I, no go ahead go ahead (laughs) well you keep saying things that make me think of other things i love it you reminded me um, about, you know, military connected towns and, you know, it's more of a problem, I would say, in places that um, that don't have as significant a proportion, because if you do, you start thinking about that more naturally. But I remember my mom um, up in uh, Mystic, Connecticut, when we were stationed there, um, running some of the family advocacy work. And she was also a teacher by training. And so one of the things she did was go out into the local school systems, the civilian school systems out and around Mystic, Connecticut, and say, listen, Part of what all of you who aren't military don't have friends or family members who are here in New London at the sub base, you know, part of what I want to talk to you about is what this nuclear submarine deployment schedule looks like. And I'm going to tell you why you should care, because the kids coming to you every day in school um, are likely to be affected by if um, dad and now mom um, are deploying or coming home. And here are some of the typical transition times, just so the teachers are aware and school superintendents and school principals are aware um, again, that they're not necessarily, but just to be on the lookout that if there are things going on and they have a school with a significant portion of Navy kids coming in, that, you know, this might be a particularly rough time. Or if, you, if you're serving kids out in Fort Hood, wow, the entire group is deploying next week. It would be really helpful for the civilian systems to know about that on a regular basis and to understand what that might mean. So, again, you're right. It's connecting um, the active duty bases or reserve guard uh, components you have, um, not you know, with the local institutions of all kinds, the faith communities, it's the education system, um, you know, courts, so that everyone sort of gets what's going on in their community at a deeper level. No, I, and and that's true. And what you're talking about is really education and and advocacy, not on the legislative uh, level, but advocacy for uh, the veteran or the service member, yes. or the service member's family. You know, yes. being that advocate and that voice. Um, and and something that you had said very earlier, which which really struck me, is a lot of people think they know what veteran mental health is, and so everybody is talking about veteran mental yeah. health. Um, in my experience, except the mental health professionals aren't, again, in that space. Um, I, I once had uh, somebody, a, a colleague, say, well, well, veterans aren't looking for mental health on, uh, on social media. And I said, have you seen Facebook lately? Yeah, because no they kidding. Sure are, what? Right? Yes, I mean, they this sure is, are. But the, but the idea is, is that, well, well there, you know, nobody's talking about it, and they are talking about it. Absolutely. But, but if we as, as mental health providers are not in that conversation, people who are not as familiar about the unique needs of veteran mental health aren't, they're going to talk about it anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also, um, you know, that's the way unhelpful stereotypes get uh, spread around too. I mean, I know a lot of the VSOs and a lot of the organizations um, here in Washington, one of the big issues is um, to remember that um, so many veterans are thriving and um, that we need to do that delicate dance between supporting and championing, especially in the employment realm. Like, you know, employers don't need to be nervous about hiring veterans. They're civic assets. I mean, um, you know, these are natural leaders. These are people who rose, you know, stuck their hand up in the air to serve. Like that's that kind of person is going to be good to work for you, whatever you do. Um, so to 
do that dance where we're realizing that as an as a group, these are remarkable people. Um, and there are some who are struggling at any given point in time that can shift over time within each person. But also, you know, we certainly are here not only to help alleviate suffering among that group, but also to help people. Um, and I always say just reclaim or sometimes claim for the first time, you know, some of these people join up when they're really young and, and come from some tough circumstances that it's not just getting rid of suffering. It's really helping people claim lives of purpose and lives of joy. And you know better than I do, a lot of what people miss when they're no longer in the military is that sense of mission, shared mission and shared purpose. And that's part of the goal of those of us outside the military is how do we help you keep serving in different ways? Um, but again, to recognize not everyone is suffering, but those who are, there is treatment. It works. Um, you know, I just came back from a combat PTSD conference um, with the Strong Star Consortium down in Texas. And that's a real, that's a huge DOD and VA research consortium. And they're doing remarkable work. And, um, you know, part of what they're trying to figure out is why do some of the most effective treatments we have for PTSD not work quite as well often in these military populations? So those are questions we need to be tracking and figuring out. But um, the message overall has to, and this works for suicide prevention, this works for um, just treatment in general, is that we have treatments that work. We, it's our job to offer hope and to not offer it lightly, but we know that these things work. And so we need to offer that hope as, the, as bridging the divide between people who are nervous to come in or, or don't know um, how to seek help or who's going to be effective in working with them. That's the overall goal is that there, there are treatments that work and we want, we will come find you as much as we will offer it and hope you come to us. Right. And I, and I think that, that um, one of the things that I firmly believe is we as mental health professionals uh, are carriers of that hope. We have yes. the, um, you know, we're, we're the, not, not the soul keepers of the hope, uh, but we have the, the skills and the ability to help shepherd that rough transition piece. Absolutely. Um, you know, as, as this, um, our, our episode is going to air after the first of the year. And I invite uh, everyone to go back and look at this or listen to the series that we had at the end of December. Um, but uh, talking about beyond just PTSD and TBI. And, and yeah. one of the things that I believe, Heather, one of the reasons why the, the treatments for PTSD don't always work for every veteran is because it's not always PTSD. Uh, you right. know, as you even mentioned that, that lack of purpose and meaning, uh, I actually work more, I, not all of the veterans I work with, um, deal with PTSD or, or have concerns around PTSD. Oh, of every, course not. Yeah. Every single one of them has concerns about purpose and meaning in their post-military yeah. life. Yes. And so we as clinicians have the lived, have the training, the experience there's this whole branch of psychology called existential psychology that can help yes. a veteran. Uh, and so Dr. Yalam and, and, and Frankel and Rollo May and, and, and we as clinicians know these skills and, and have the techniques. We just don't know that we need to apply them to veterans because those clinicians who are not familiar with veteran culture think that PTSD is the thing. Is the only thing that's going on. Oh, I could not agree with you more. Um, well, and, you know, we're seeing a lot more conversation about um, moral injury and that different kinds of trauma carry with it different kinds of feelings about guilt or shame or what we're kind of lumping into moral injury. But these are all issues that are important. And, and again, depending on the age at which, um, you know, people are, are getting out. I mean, these are these are issues you'd be having if you were 32 and not a veteran, too. So 
Um, I, I think you're smart to bring the focus back to, again, paying attention to the individual in your room, in your practice, in your group, um, and not assume going in um, what's going on with everyone. But, but that re- remember, you're not just sitting with a veteran, but you're sitting with someone with whom you have to have a conversation to figure out what's going on. Yes, I often say, of course, there's the adage, if the only ham- if the only tool I have is a hammer, then all I see are nails. But exactly. the, re- the reverse is also true. If the only thing I see is a nail, the only tool I'm going to use right. is a hammer. Even right. though I have all these other tools, if I just think it's one thing, I'm only going to try to use this one thing. I love EMDR, and, and prolonged exposure absolutely works if it's PTSD alone. But then if you know, as I do, the comorbid substance use disorders, um, non-PTSD-related depression, moral injury, the lack of needs fulfillment, all of these different things that I talk about uh, back in that series, uh, that uh, really letting clinicians know you have a lot more tools than you think, and you really need to pay attention to what the veteran uh, or the veteran family member has uh, going Absolutely. I mean, if you talk to VA psychologists or other um, clinicians and physicians, um, part of what they'll tell you is walking in the door, um, one of the the most common complaints um, is sleep problems. And you've, I'm sure, seen this with with your clients. Um, Or personally. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) As a combat vet, sure. (laughs) Right. So... um, you know, I think uh, we can't be slow to realize that, um, and you're hearing a lot more about it, but I, you know, I brought someone to Capitol Hill last two weeks ago to talk about this with the deputy secretary of the VA came and three directors of VA research centers that had something to do with suicide prevention. And, you know, we purposely sort of chose the research centers that might not be what you would think of as suicide prevention on first glance. And one of the researchers was a sleep expert. And uh, he said, listen, you know, sleep is the window to everything. And if you're not sleeping, nothing pretty much is going on and going well in your life. So part of what we treat um, and their behavioral treatments, certainly for insomnia and other sleep disorders, but part of what we treat is um, sleep. And that often in some of those conversations, talking about sleep, mental health issues then come up. And that person is is often unlikely to have ever shown up for a mental health issue. But he sure will come in because his wife says, your sleep stuff is driving me crazy. Like I can't sleep because you're not sleeping and then you're horrible with the kids and you can't, you know, you can't hold a job. So if we can get people in for sleep, we can not only help solve some really crushing um, problems. I mean, I think we all know that if we're not sleeping well, nothing else is going well. But, but again, it's often the gateway to then talking about some other things that are going on. And, and for the mental health professionals, they're seeing that as a huge plus, again, breaking down barriers to um, to care. And that's why it's important, again, to be to have an integrated care system where people can come in for something that is truly troubling them, that they see as a physical ailment. And then that can um, have a lot of a, a lot of other conversations can ensue because of that relationship. Yes, absolutely. And and I know, uh, and, and I guess as, as I'd warned you before, I could talk about this for hours, know, and I'm certain <laughs> that you could too. There's so much here, and, 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 and I definitely uh, would love to invite you back and, and, and really you. talk about some of those, those other aspects. Uh, but before, uh, before we leave uh, here, um, how can veterans or providers maybe find more about the work that you're doing or, or connect with you to be able to uh, get more information about some of the stuff you talked about? Well, I would love it. And so I really am very responsive to email. Um, so let me give everyone um, my work email address at APA, which is hkelly, H-K-E-L-L-Y, at APA.org. 
Um, I'm, uh, I respond to every email I get and, uh, I'd love to have people reach out, um, with questions or to tell me things that, um, you know, about your expertise. If you're a provider, I'd love to know what you're up to. If you're a veteran, I'd love to hear about your experiences. And I bring veterans to the Hill as often as I bring mental health providers to the Hill. It's, we all need to be talking and we all need to be talking a lot more with the policymakers who shape um, shape what happens in your lives. So I would love to hear from all of you. No, that's really great. And I'll make sure to, uh, to have that. And, and I know that you're active on Twitter, uh, which is great, I um, am. <laughs> which is, uh, unique in my experience again, amongst, uh, mental health professionals. And so I'll make sure to have links to, to all of that on the show notes. And, uh, terrific. and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was a delight and it was terrific to spend time with you. Thanks so much. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability so there you have it, folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on better mental health. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track Not Alone from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctod.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone, veterans. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
and I love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.